Good morning, Greenville Oaks. It's good to be with you this morning, especially under such occasions as this, right? Welcome to the party. And I say that, and it might feel a bit strange to you in a place like this, right? Because hasn't church been the place that we don't throw parties exactly? In fact, that's something the world does. But I want to remind us that the people of God have always been people of celebration. The people of of God have been people who have always celebrated from the festivals in the Old Testament to crossing the Red Sea and what happens in the next chapter. We're going to look at that story next week. But today I want to talk about the story of the prodigal son. And I want to remind us that there are spiritual disciplines like prayer and fasting and reading our Bibles on a regular basis that are faith-forming exercises. We want to affirm those in this church. But we ought to be about the spiritual discipline of celebration as well. It's part of what the the people of God have been engaged in for centuries. In fact, this is what we do. This is why worship is on Sunday morning rather than Saturday as it was centuries prior because there's something that happened on a Sunday morning, resurrection, that we come together to celebrate every time we're together here on Sunday mornings. And so we come in celebration. We come in anticipation. This morning I want us to look at the story we looked at last week, the prodigal son story. But I don't want us to look at it from the perspective of the younger brother this week. We talked about that last week. I want to look at it from a different perspective, and uh, I'll tell you more about that in just a minute, but let's begin with a prayer as we open God's Word this morning. Father, you are good, and your love endures forever. Throughout the generations, you have been faithful, and your story has been told, and with it has come celebration, and this morning is no different. We celebrate the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news of His coming, of His death, of His burial, and of His resurrection. This morning, God, I pray you would pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. And it's the name of Jesus that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Well, some of you remember Mrs. Sanders. You know Mrs. Sanders, the, the, the grade school teacher in your Sunday school that taught you many of the stories of faith growing up, those of you who grew up in church. Maybe Mrs. Sanders wasn't the name of your teacher, but she was mine. And I remember Mrs. Sanders telling us all kinds of stories, uh, some on flannel graphs and some on, you know, projectors of different kinds and just telling stories. But I remember Mrs. Sanders, and I remember specifically her telling of the prodigal son's story. And I'm wondering if you remember that telling of the story for the first time as well. Didn't Mrs. Sanders make home feel so good to you? Like it was something to return home to. It would be exciting to have a party thrown in your honor, when I, re- when I returned home, or when the younger brother returned home, don't you remember all that Mrs. Sanders told you about? What the commentators would tell you in commentaries as well. Maybe you had heard it in sermons. The robe, the robe would have been a first quality, and it would have signified so much of the comfort and acceptance of being received back home after years on the road. And I liked that. I really liked that, didn't you? And then there was the, the signet ring, Right? That signet ring that represented power and the, and the power to be welcomed back home because the father had the power to say it is so. You remember the shoes that she talked about? The shoes were shoes like slaves would have received when they were released to their freedom. And so these shoes, the, they, they represented freedom. And that was a good thing, wasn't it? And there was the fattened calf. They didn't eat meat every, every, every time in the first century. So this would have been a, a huge celebration, a huge feast. This would have been good news. And the whole community would have had to come out because to eat a fattened calf, it would have taken that. This is a huge celebration. 
And then there was the kiss, the sign of reconciliation, of course, the embrace of the Father. But you've all heard that bit of history that you wouldn't have known were it not for preachers like us that tell you things like, and the Father running, no one in the first century would have done that. You've heard this before, right? Mrs. Sanders brought the story alive. She told of all the symbols and the signs in this story. And we've already done the calculation in our heads, haven't we? In the 21st century, what would that return home look like? It would look like, well, a closet full of tailored clothes that we would return back to, wouldn't it? Just for our specifications. And then in the driveway, there would be that, that Lexus SUV that we'd be welcomed home to. You know, like the signet ring of sorts, a symbol of power. And then as you enter into the party, can't you remember the, the smells that she would talk about, Mrs. Sanders? She would talk about, well, what would appetizer be? It would have to be lobster bisque, right? I mean, can't you just imagine that? Just smell that right now. I know, it's almost lunchtime. This is dangerous, right? But, and, and then there would have been beef tenderloins. But dessert, you've always got to remember dessert and creme brulee for dessert. Can't you just, didn't that sound so good to be welcomed home? And Mrs. Sanders' story would come alive. You'll sign up for this story to be the main character that's received home. It's good news. Now, for those of you who are prodigals out there, and there are some in the crowd, we talked about this last week, this is good news. That is a proper way to read this story. But what Miss Sanders forgot and left out was a specific detail at the beginning of the story that was really what this story was all about. Because the story was told in a context of Pharisees who were bothered by the associations that Jesus was keeping. And Mrs. Sanders had a history of kind of leaving out parts of the story, right? Like that story about Jonah, it really wasn't about the fish, and Jonah's not the hero. It's really a story about racism and nationalism, prohibitions against those kinds of things. And then there was the story of Noah, and she kind of left the curtains up on part of that story and didn't show his unpresentable nature after that. It wasn't just about the boat. And then there was a story about, you know, there were all kinds of stories she told. There was a story about David, and it wasn't just about killing a giant, because David also killed the husband of the wife of, well, it was Bathsheba, wasn't it? And and so she used to kind of keep us out of those parts of the story, because only certain parts of the story are appropriate. But we have to remember the context in which the story was told. This is about Pharisees. This is about, well, the older brother, isn't it? So this morning, I want to invite you not just to look at this story as the good news of returning home with all that that means for prodigals, for younger brothers. I want you to look at this story from the perspective of the older brother. And I think some of us may need to hear this. I may need to hear this this morning. So let's read again from Luke chapter 15, if you have your Bibles with you. Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 25. Meanwhile... The older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked him, what uh, what was going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Well, the older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. Now, the question is, what is up with this older brother, right? I mean, we have different people in this crowd this morning. Some of you are more like the younger brother or sister. You, you, were, you were the life of the party. 
You knew how to mix it up. You knew that no party was going to be a party before you got there. You didn't follow the rules. You made your own rules. You were the family prankster, the class clown. You enjoyed college, but it wasn't because of the degree that's on your wall. It was just the time you had, and you didn't get the degree. Younger brothers understand, and it's beyond a younger brother's perspective. How can you not enter into the party? But others of you are like the older brother. Older brothers grew up as compliant children. Some called them teacher's pets, but we didn't call it that, right? We followed the rules. We did things by the book. We were rule followers. Not exactly the life of the party. We were too worried about the punch being spiked at our high school prom. We just went with dry mouth instead of risking imbibing that kind of liquid, right? So I want you to look at this story from the older brother's perspective. I mean, just imagine this scene with me, right? You were there the moment that the younger brother asked dad for the inheritance. He sold off the land. He wanders off to go spend it, and you're left there to watch him walk away. You were there all along when dad was sitting there on the back porch waiting for the son to return home, not celebrating the fact that you had worked all day with him, but just seeing him with a tear in his eye wishing the younger brother would come back home. You were there doing double duty because the younger brother wasn't there to work the farm. You were there doing all that you should have done, doing everything you did, and yet you didn't get all that you'd hoped you would. You were there doing everything right while your brother was blowing the family fortune. And some of you know exactly what that's like because you've lived that story, haven't you? You were responsible when no one else was. You work when everyone else went home. You still do. You, you pick up the slack and others take the credit. Now imagine this scene again with all five of your senses with that perspective, being the older brother who's seen all those things. Imagine you've worked a full day, right? Just like you've done for years while your brother's been off somewhere else. You got the sweat on you, you got the dirt on you, all the things that a farmer would have from work in the field or whatever this is that's the family business. And you're coming home, you're walking home, and all of a sudden you hear the distant sound. Again, use all five senses. You hear the distant sound uh, of music beginning to play. Well, that's a bit odd because the barn's not usually a place with music playing in it. And then you begin to use your eyes a little bit, and you begin to see stirring some people who are up near the barn, and, and it looks like something's happening you didn't expect that day, because you're walking home just hoping to get a bath and, and go to bed so you can wake up early the next morning and milk the cows. And then all of a sudden you begin to smell the smells. Lobster bisque, beef tenderloin, creme brulee. And those smells don't sound near as good to you as they probably smell to other people around. And so you call one of the servants over and you say, what's the story here? What's with all the, the, the music? What's with all the, the smells? What's all this? You see the Lexus SUV parked out there and you're wondering, what is this all about? And, and the servant says, well, your, your brother came home. And we throw in a party. Get your party clothes on. It's time to party tonight. Dad's killing the fattened calf. How might you feel in a situation like that? Can you not understand how those sights and sounds and smells feel a little different than, to you than they do the hero in the story? You might feel a little bit like this as we read on in verse 28. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf. For him. Have you ever felt like that before? Have you ever felt like you were owed something? Because you'd been doing everything right, and then somebody who doesn't deserve it as much takes the credit, or takes the job, or, or takes the uh, whatever it might be in your life. 
I've been there before. You ever felt like you were owed something, and then, but you don't seem to get it? And if you're an older brother, you have. Because you're the one who always stays behind. You're the responsible one. Did you you hear what the older brother says? I want to read again verse 29. Listen closely to what he says. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. I want you to pay close attention to his description of the father. All these years I've been slaving for you, never disobeyed your orders. What does the father sound like according to that description? Like Pharaoh, right? Like a slave driver. Now, if you've never probably read this verse in this context before. How have you always seen this father before? Oh, he's this gracious father who receives him back home. He receives prodigals back home. This is good news, but if you're the older brother, this isn't good news, is it? And some of us think we've been slaving on behalf of a father that we might not have been slaving after all along. It's interesting the description the older brother gives, isn't it? But I'm the older brother, and I can understand the perspective because... I got to tell you, I've probably missed less than 10 Sunday mornings in all my life. And I, I went to school and I learned Greek and Hebrew. And we all know you can get into heaven without knowing Greek and Hebrew. You just won't be able to communicate when you get there. And I've been tithing since day one, since I got $1 of allowance. A dime was going in that plate. When you do that over the years, I mean, if anyone is owed anything, I am. And the way this story is told, if anyone's going to miss out on the party, I am. And that's what religion can do to a person, can it? Ultimately, the prodigal son story is not about the younger brother. You can read the story and you can understand it, and certainly there's application you can make there. But this is a story about the older brother, which naturally brings me to a question I want to address with you this morning. Something that's probably on all of our minds, right? Is Jeffrey Dahmer in heaven or not? I'm looking at your faces, and that may not have been the question that was on your mind this morning. But it's a question I want to pose today. Because most of you have heard the story of Jeffrey Dahmer. You know him as the serial killer. All kinds of awful details about what he did and, and the death that may have happened in prison. You know what happened before he went into prison, but do you know the story about when he went to prison and what happened inside? Do you know that Jeffrey Dahmer was converted and baptized while he was in prison? Uh, It was thanks to a 69-year-old woman from Arlington, Virginia, a Church of Christ member of all things named Mary Mott, who sent 12 World Bible School studies to Jeffrey in prison after seeing a Dateline program. And he decided he wanted to give his life, confess his sins, and be immersed into Jesus Christ. And so she sent that story on to a Church of Christ minister, a 47-year-old guy named Roy Ratcliffe in Madison, Wisconsin. And He goes into prison, he hears his story, takes his confession, and baptizes him into Jesus Christ. Now, uh, those who are around Dahmer report that in prison, his behavior changed after this whole conversion moment. So, is Jeffrey Dahmer in heaven or not? Now, if you're honest with yourself, that question brings up mixed emotions, doesn't it? There's part of you that says, of course, the grace of God's big enough For anyone to be saved, there's no one who's beyond the scope of God's redemption. So we don't question God's power to redeem Jeffrey Dahmer, do we? We question Dahmer's sincerity. Let's be honest, we're skeptical about deathbed conversions, aren't we? About people who live all their life in a certain way, 
Any older brothers out there that feel the same way, perhaps? I'm curious, I guess this morning, if, if you knew the, the time and the date that you were going to pass away, what would your life look, up, look like up until that moment? Because most of our, our, our evangelistic strategies have really involved the question of we really don't know when we're going to die. But if you were to somehow know that time and date, would you wait until the final moment to make that confession and be converted to Jesus as Savior? Here's what I'm wanting, starting to wonder. See, we question Dahmer's sincerity. But I begin to wonder as I look with envy, not so much on Dahmer, but on other people who've lived certain kinds of lives and then have that deathbed conversion. I, there's a part, piece of me that's envious of that, which tells me maybe I think I'm slaving after something. Maybe I'm not following God for the right reasons. Maybe it's not Dahmer whose sincerity should be questioned. Maybe it's me whose sincerity should be questioned. I know a lot of people who would live lives of serial adultery if it weren't for the fires of hell scaring them away from it. I know a lot of people who would cheat on their taxes, who would continue to live a certain way of life if it wasn't for fear that was keeping them in a certain way. And envy becomes to be a part of this, but I'm here to tell you, parties are for the kingdom of God, not envy of people who've been slaving away after a father who's not a slave driver. And I felt envious about a lot of people, but I've got to tell you, there was one guy in 1991, the spring of 91, I didn't feel envious about at all. My mom grew up in a household with a a, a believing mom who was a faithful woman of God. My grandfather really wasn't a believer. Uh, He would go to church from time to time, but he didn't follow God. And and over the years, he'd go to church alone, but just he was clear that this was not his commitment, was to Jesus. So my mom and my grandmother prayed for him over the years, year after year, that he would finally come to know Jesus. Well, one year we were uh, in San Diego, California, and this prayer had been going on for years, and my grandparents decided to visit. This is my mom's parents, and my mom and my grandmother were taking a nap that afternoon along with us, and I don't remember the story, but the story's been told so many times I could tell it in my sleep. That on the couch that afternoon, my grandfather asked my dad, he said, it's time, I want to be baptized. My grandfather was in his 70s at the time. So my dad said, okay, uh, we're not telling your, your mom and grandmother, we're We're going to go tonight to service, and you're going to go out without telling anybody, okay? This is going to be a joke on them, right? So so we get to service. Dad preaches his sermon as hard as he can. He gets the invitation song, and uh, the first verse comes, and Granddad's holding on to the pew, white-knuckling it, right? And after about the third verse, he starts to walk down front, and the looks on my mom and my grandmother's face are incredible as my dad tells the story. My grandfather was baptized that day after all these years of prayers. i got to tell you, there was not one bit of envy or skepticism about my grandfather's faith. It was just pure joy because a prayer we'd been praying was finally answered. And any of you who've been through that experience where you've prayed for someone, you'd hope they'd come to faith, you know that experience. There was no envy in that experience. There was no skepticism about belief. It was just pure joy that God did this. A party was about to start because this was what we longed God would do. But when it's not someone who's close to you, We tend to question it, don't we? And I'm not sure if Jeffrey Dahmer's in heaven. That's up to God. That's between him and God. But I do know this. If the parable of the prodigal son teaches us anything, it's that in the kingdom of God, there is no envy or skepticism about people who are turning their lives to God. There's only parties. And guess what? God has the right to do what he wants with his grace. And there's no reason to be envious of his generosity because the truth is he's been more generous than he could have ever been with us, hasn't he? 
We don't know the outcome of the conversation with the father and the older son in the story. So we kind of leaves that uh, loose end not tied up. Perhaps he did leave and he decided to go into the party. Maybe he received the father's request. Or maybe he stayed outside the party. We don't know. But i got to tell you, whether he went in or didn't, I understand the dilemma of the older brother. And I also understand how staying outside of the party, envious of the party, can also kill you spiritually as well. But as God has been turning my heart to love the lost in ways that wasn't true in years past, I'm beginning to see a new light in this parable that I've never seen before. There's a concern that's pushing me to enter into the party. Here's my concern I'm beginning to think as I look at myself, as I look at American Christianity around me. My concern, I'm concerned that a large percentage of American Christians would prefer for hell to be more populated than heaven. And if that's where we are, we have missed the story of the prodigal son. I'm not here to tell you who's in and who's out. I'm not here to change the words of Jesus and to say the road's not narrow. All I'm here to say is we ought to all be hopeful people that God's grace is large and big. Amen? Because we all need it, don't we? I want to finish with the words that the father says to the older brother. I think these are words that we need to hear today. Especially those of us who may be older brothers and sisters. My son, the father said, you were always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Listen closely, older brothers and sisters. I want to speak as clearly as I can to you today as one who's been in that place and still struggles. God wants to say to you, my son, my daughter, everything I have is yours. Everything I have is yours. You're good. You're covered. There's enough grace to go around. There's enough for you as well. You're saved. So you can stop being a slave now. You can stop thinking that I'm a slave driver. You can stop pointing out other flaws so that you can hope they're not good enough and maybe you'd be a part of the small number that will get in. You can be a son. You can be a daughter. Now I'm going to go back in and go in with your brother. I hope you'll come too. Because there's enough seats at the table for even you. There always has been. There always will be. This guest list isn't that carefully selected. Church, I'm a recovering older brother. Let me confess. I have spent too much time outside of the party. I've spent too much time at the door trying to play bouncer to God's party. And I realize now that I have no control over the guest list, and God seems to be much more generous than I would ever be. And now that I think about it, the food smells pretty good, doesn't it? And the music's a whole lot better than it sounded when we were walking up the road at first. There's part of me that doesn't want to enter in, but isn't there a part of you that finally wants to give up the charade and walk into the party? So church, will you come in with me? Will you join the party? that God set for all his children. Let's enter the party together, amen? And that's the invitation that I want to give as we launch Party at Home. This is a campaign that's going to be for about 60 days where we're challenging our families to engage in celebration together. 
to, to engage our church and all of those in this church to be a part of celebrations. Because this is what God does for prodigals, and it's what he does for older brothers as well. Amen? So there's three ways I want to challenge you to join this party over the next 60 days as we come together as a church to engage this celebration. Number one, party at home. What does that look like in your home to make celebration a spiritual discipline that you get to enjoy together? What are the special moments of the next 60 days and beyond that you can begin to celebrate? What are the the traditions that you need to start that are celebrations so that your kids know this is a welcome place, this is a place of celebration? And I know in some of your homes right now that might be really difficult because things are tense. It's hard to celebrate when things are tense. But more and more, I think this is good for the people of God to realize it's good for us to enjoy one another. It is good to celebrate together. It's good to go throw parties with a purpose. It's good to celebrate for things that matter. And we've got a lot to celebrate, don't we? There's so many gifts that we just miss on an everyday basis. And I'm guessing there are a lot of people out there that would love to tell you, would you celebrate more in your families? Because we should have done more of it. We should have started more traditions. We should have had more parties. We shouldn't have said no as many times as we did celebrate together. The second thing we want to challenge you to do is party at church. We've got several ways that we want to ask you to party at church. We've got three opportunities coming up. The first is today, the tailgate party. that starts at 3 o'clock today. Come, show up. If you're one of those who usually doesn't, hey, put on your jersey and come have fun with us, okay? We'd love to have you. Bring your uh, tailgate foods and we'll have a good time together. The second is on October 11th. It's Sunday night after the instrumental service that month. We're going to be having a game night for families. But it's also for everyone in this church to engage in fun together. We talk a lot about how we don't get together as much as we used to. And this month, we're going to do that. We're going to get together and we're going to celebrate together. So we invite you to that. The third is October 25th, which is our trunk trunk or treat. And trunk or treat, we've done big for a lot of years in this church. And I'm excited to see the ways we're going to even take steps beyond that this year to celebrate in an even greater way. So we need more of you to to, to decorate trunks. We're going to have more people. We've got more things that we'll tell you about in the days to come about how we're going to celebrate that with our community. And the third way we want to challenge you to do this is to party in your neighborhood. What would it look like for us as the people of God to be the houses that people know are houses of celebration, not for all the wrong reasons? No one wants to be that neighbor, right? For all the right reasons. To be places of hospitality. What if evangelism in the 21st century looks like us having our doors open more often and people knowing that is a house where they know to have fun together? What would it look like for us to engage that in our connecting point groups over the next 60 days to begin this process of getting to know our neighbors and being the house on the block that people know is always an open door. I want to challenge you to think through that. Throw a block party in your neighborhood. Grab some neighbors and friends in your connecting point group and throw a party in your neighborhood and let the people know you're welcome to show up. This isn't just about church people. It's about all of us who need good news. Get to know your neighbors. Be good disciples. Be good hospitable people. Today, I want to challenge you after the message today, go into the Faith at Home Center. You've already heard some horns and balloons today. Go grab another one. We've got plenty if the kids uh, bust one today, okay? So go over there and grab, uh, there, there's a party at home guide that will tell you more about how to engage this. They've also got some balloons and party horns, which you're going to thank me for in the car on the way home. I know. Hey, we got it in our car too, okay? So enjoy. But we want this to be a place where our kids know they can come and celebrate because the resurrection of Jesus has changed everything. The last thing I want to challenge you to do is you see a hashtag up here. That's that pound sign for some of you who don't know what a hashtag is. But on social media, we would challenge you to go ahead and post pictures of the parties that you throw in your neighborhoods here at church, uh, in your connecting point groups, around the table as families. Whatever you're doing to celebrate together, post that on Facebook, post that on Instagram or Twitter. Put that hashtag with it. We'll be able to track and see the celebrations that are going on. And people around will get to wonder, what is party church to you? Well, that's a conversation starter, right? 
We're going to be about this for the next few weeks. I'm really excited to see what this does and the ways that we'll get to connect with one another. Uh, And thanks for listening today. I'm excited about the messages I'm going to get to bring because what we're going to find is that God is a God of celebration and Jesus' people ought to be people throwing the best parties. Amen? Let's pray as we close our time together. God, we thank you so much for being a God of celebration. And God, for years we've talked about disciplines as things that are difficult. But God, there there are ways of grace that you pour into our lives, and prayer is a great way we do that. We did that uh, as a church not too long ago. You know that, God. You heard those prayers on a daily basis. We want to continue that. We want to have meals together as we've done before, God. There are so many disciplines, but one of the ones we've left out and not done enough of is celebration. So God, help us to come together. Help us to find ways to celebrate. Let us start new traditions. Let us be people who share the joy of Christ. This is a fruit of the Spirit, joy is, God. You've given it to us through your Spirit. And so, God, we want to put that on display to the world to let people know that Christians aren't just people who are sticks in the mud. No, we have much to celebrate, God. And we thank you for that. Thank you for this church and the ways that we'll get to celebrate in the days to come and what that will create in this church and our families, ways of excitement for our neighbors to wonder what is, what's different about these people. And what's different is that Jesus has changed us and your Holy Spirit's pouring new life into us. So God, thank you so much, and we uh, thank you for all this. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.